You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. We'll be reading from Matthew uh, chapter 21, verses 12 through 17. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, They were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, John. Good morning, everyone. You may be seated. We do have Redemption Hill kids this morning, so if that serves you, your families, uh, we have Redemption Hill kids for ages two to four, and then five to nine. Our kids ages five to nine will continue through the catechism. So thank you for those who are serving in Redemption Hill kids this morning. Thank you to our teachers. A regular rhythm uh, that has developed at Redemption Hill Church is to celebrate and remember major events in history. Some of this is more obvious, others maybe not so much. Let me explain. For example, we usually have an Advent sermon series leading up to Christmas. Many of you have been with Redemption Hill long enough, you, you know that. You've experienced that every, every, every December. Uh, going forward, I want us to celebrate uh, Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost, which we read about in Acts 2, is... I think one of the most undervalued, but most important events in history. <laughs> it is a day that the church was birthed. Like when you think about church history, like your mind has to go back to Acts 2. And we need to see what God did then, and what he continues to do in building his church. Now, since Pentecost, God has been at work in and through the bride of Christ, the church, to accomplish his mission of redemption. Another part of this rhythm is thinking well about Holy Week, right? Holy Week is Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday, and all the events that take place between these two days. So last year, I took time to explain the significance of Palm Sunday. I preached from Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11, and that passage basically describes the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday set into motion numerous events. On Holy Monday, which will be tomorrow, we celebrate and remember the time Jesus curses the, the fig tree, which if you've you got your finger in Matthew 21 right now, that's the next passage from what John read. On Holy Monday, we remember the time Jesus cleansed the temple, which is what we will be looking at today. And we, we see why Jesus wept over Jerusalem. So it's part of Holy Week. Now, on Tuesday, Holy Tuesday, we remember and celebrate the Olivet Discourse and the moment Judas bargains with the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus. 
Holy Wednesday is traditionally called Silent Wednesday. As far as we can tell from piecing together a timeline about Holy Week, it seems that Jesus and his disciples took time to prepare for the Passover. On Maudi Thursday, Jesus and his disciples celebrate the Passover, and the Lord's table is instituted by Jesus. After the Passover meal, Jesus betrayed, is betrayed by Judas. And of course, we celebrate Good Friday. Again, this is all part of Holy Week. Good Friday, Jesus is tried, he suffers immensely, and he was crucified. After his death, Jesus is buried in a tomb. It is through the greatest injustice that the world has ever known in which God's plan of redemption will find its climax. Not too much happens on Holy Saturday, but Pontius Pilate does grant the request that guards stand in front of the sealed tomb of Jesus. And then, of course, Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate how and why Jesus conquered death. We say that Jesus is risen, is risen. And that is good news. Now, there's some debate about the exact order of events, but what is clear is that from Palm Sunday to what many of us say Easter Sunday, Jesus was preparing hearts and minds to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that happened between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday are not insignificant events. So, over the next several years, my goal is to use Palm Sunday, what we're celebrating today, to preach on the events leading up to Good Friday. As I, as I already said, last year I preached on the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. And this morning I'm going to preach at the events that took place in the temple. And next year we'll look at another event that took place between these two days. So, it's just an overview of Holy Week for you. Um, I hope you're encouraged from these messages over the years to go deeper in your understanding of these events during Holy Week, but which results in a deeper understanding of who God is. Once again, these events are not insignificant, and I hope you see why Jesus cleansing the temple is an extremely significant event. So, let me pray, and then we'll get into the message. I need God's help to preach his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering this morning. Thank you for the privilege for us to gather as a church body. And Lord, my prayer is that I would be faithful this morning to preach your word. And I pray for my friends that are in front of me this morning. That in the power of the Holy Spirit, you would speak to their hearts and their minds. And I pray that a greater love for you would grow within them. So Lord, in these moments, we trust that you are indeed with us. We pray this in Christ's name. Have you ever been to, uh, invited to an event, or perhaps to someone's home, and then you, you walk away, and you say to yourself, or maybe to someone who's with you, I didn't expect that. Perhaps you hear about someone that you've never met, but upon meeting that person for the first time, you realize you created a, a caricature of that person, and that caricature was absolutely wrong. Like, I do that all the time. Like, you hear about secondhand knowledge. My wife would be like, hey, honey, I met this person today. Da, 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 da. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And you paint this picture of this person. And you meet that person for the first time, you realize that is not what I expected at all. Perhaps you've known a person for a long time, but then one day you learn something new and you say, I did not expect to hear that from 
that person. Like, I've been married for over six, 16 years. Math check, we good? 16? Okay, good. 16 years. And I'm still learning more about my wife. I'm like, whoa! Not, not in a bad way, just like, I didn't expect that. Over the years, I've witnessed how many people create caricatures of Jesus. A caricature is a picture we have of someone or something. Some characters have to do with like physical attributes. Other caricatures have to do with perhaps just character attributes. For a moment, I want to table the question if we should have pictures of, of Jesus. That's, that's debated. But over the years, I've seen Jesus presented as a, a person with blonde hair and blue eyes. I think if you live in America, you've definitely seen that. If you're in the Midwest and then kind of in the North, we got like Scandinavian Jesus. I've seen Jesus presented as black skin, right, and black hair. We have Asian Jesus. I mean, the truth of the matter is, he lived in the Middle East. What about the character attributes of, of Jesus? There are times I cringe, not all the time, but there are times when I cringe when I hear someone say, Jesus is love. Let me explain that. Because <laughs> everyone's going to be like, what? Jesus is love. I, I do not cringe because I do not believe Jesus is love. I cringe because of how love is defined in relationship to Jesus. We, we just sang about a redeeming love. That's the kind of love that I associate with Jesus, but that's not what happens. I cringe because the slogan, Jesus is love, dismisses all the other attributes of Christ and is oftentimes used as an excuse for Jesus to accept behavior that is condemned in the Bible. Here's another false caricature of Jesus. In the blasphemous movie from 1999, the movie Dogma, don't recommend watching it. Watch it before I was a Christian. Got to throw those caveats in. Uh, it portrays the Lord as Buddy Christ. In the movie, uh, the Catholic Church introduces a new image of Jesus to replace the, quote, depressing image of the crucifixion. The crucifixion was replaced with an image of Jesus. He's like winking his eye and he's got his fingers out like that. And they call him Buddy Christ. He's laughing. It, it is a cynical movie, but it creates a caricature of Jesus that is more accepted by our culture than what we read in Holy Scripture. How about this as a picture of Buddy Christ from Revelation? Then I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. You know what we're going to see here in a moment? The same Christ that judges in righteousness and makes war is the same one who turns over tables and chairs in the temple. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. In the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, pure and white, were following him on a white horse. How about this as a caricature? From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. How are we doing? It's a far better caricature of Christ than the buddy Jesus we see floating around in our culture. As we look at today's passage from Matthew 21, it is critical we set aside an image of Jesus given to us by our culture, which we sometimes foist upon ourselves. Instead, we need to allow Holy Scripture to inform what we believe and what we know. I'm not dismissing or minimizing the statement, Jesus is love. He is love. What I am highlighting is that any vision of Jesus that we have needs to be informed by all of Holy Scripture. What we read in Matthew 21, verses 12 to 17, and like I said earlier, the story after where he curses the fig tree, there's no exception in terms of how we need to understand Jesus. What we see from Jesus in Matthew 21 is a righteous anger from Jesus, and we have to understand why, of all times, during Holy Week. Why is he angry? A righteous anger. Not the sinful anger that Sean has at times when he pops off. Right? A righteous anger. Why is Jesus so angry? The same Lord and Savior who urges little children to come to him, right? We read it all the time in the Gospels. Jesus tells the children to come. That, that same Jesus is the same one who overturned the tables and chairs in the temple. Here's the Old Testament context of Jesus in the temple. This is the passage that Matthew might have had on his mind, I think he did, when he wrote this event in his gospel. We read from the prophet Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to you in his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So what we read in Matthew 21 in particular between verses 12 and 17, is Jesus fulfilling prophecy again. So the cleansing of the temple shows up in all four Gospels. There's some debate if John, the Gospel writer John, is writing about the same event as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is clear that the event that takes place during Holy Week is before Jesus is to be crucified. John also records the event during Passover, but it appears that John records an event that took place years prior to the death of Christ. So there are kind of two options on the table. How do we reconcile these stories and all the Gospels, but John seems to be somewhat of an outlier? One of two, two options. Either Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell about the same event, suggesting that John arranges his material in the Gospel, John differently, which is actually a true statement. John arranges his material very differently from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Or Jesus cleansed the temple two different times. So it was an ongoing issue in the temple. Nonetheless, um, however, whatever position you take is fine. It's debated. 
But I'll dip our toe into the Gospel of John because the same issue, like I said, is being addressed in all four Gospels. So here's how the temple is understood throughout the Bible. Here is the thread that holds this sermon together. The Jewish temple was a big deal, big, big deal. It is the place of worship for the Jews. You will see this morning that Jesus calls himself the temple as well, right? And finally, the church, the New Testament people of God are also called a temple in the New Testament. We, don't, we don't, do not need to go to a temple to worship, but we are called to worship God with our lives as a temple. So that's kind of the thread that's going to hold everything together as we see Jesus cleansing the temple. So here's the big question. What caused Jesus to overturn temples and chairs? What caused him? I think the answer is found in verse 13. Jesus says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. That word robbers could also be translated as like bandits, right? Outlaws, something to that effect. Know that the accusation is not like the abuse of prayer, but something that is sacred, the temple, had been turned into something that is different of what it was intended for. The temple was supposed to be a place of worship. It was supposed to be a place where the people of God come together to pray. It was supposed to be a place where sacrifices to God were, were made. It was the place where Scripture was supposed to be read and interpreted. Now, all these activities, I think, took place but some took advantage of the, the religious facade. With the pretty veneer of Jewish religion, business was taking place in the temple, probably one of the outer courts of the temple. And so the purpose of the temple was marred. I mean, be, just thinking out loud right now, and you get to participate in that. It'd be like me showing up one Sunday and being like, hey, um, I know you all give to the church, thanks, but I'm, I got my own little fundraiser that I'm doing for my new Ford uh, F-350. Uh, who, who wants to give to that? All of you, please. I'm your pastor. Come on. I mean, we're taking advantage of the situation. That's what's going on here. There were two things, I think, that are true at the same time in this situation. First, Jesus does know the future of the temple. He's not naive. The Son of God, the sovereign Son of God, knows what's going to happen to the temple. Second, Jesus sees how the wicked heart of man has taken something sacred and defiled it. A place of worship had become the place of business. After moving back to, to Iowa... I received a phone call from another pastor. Uh, he read through our church website, read our theological distinctions, wanted to talk about it. So we had lunch together. And half of the time we were chatting, he spoke about the, quote, business of the church. And I left that lunch meeting, and I called my wife, and I'm like, I can't figure out if he's a pastor or a CEO. Now, on the one hand, if you want to exist as a church in America, there are business functions you got to attend to. I get that. You know, account, uh, accounting and corporation paperwork, maintaining a good relationship with the city and, and the school district in our, in our situation. There are plenty of business functions that need to be dealt with. However, the business of the church should never be a focus of the church. It's there. It's kind of a low hum that hangs in the background. 
But the church exists, God's church exists, to be a place where the excellencies of Christ are exalted. The church exists for broken people to approach a good and gracious God to receive healing. Redemption Hill does not meet in a physical temple, but, but it would not take too much to lose focus of why we gather, right? The problem in the temple was clearly more than the church administrator not doing the 501c3 paperwork for the federal government. Commerce was taking place, and the commerce was probably taking advantage of people. We read in verse 12, And Jesus entered the temple, drove out all who sold and bought, so transactions, sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. The Gospel of John gives us another angle of a a similar situation. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. The temple had turned into a cattle market. But that is not the only issue that Jesus has with what is going on in the temple. When Jesus says the temple had turned into a den of robbers, he was quoting Jeremiah 7. we got to go there. We read this in Jeremiah. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. This is the prophet Jeremiah speaking into his culture. Specifically speaking to to God's people, Israel. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make an offering to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? How silly is that? Go after that. We're going to go worship that God. What God? I don't know, that over there. Who does that? Well, they did. Sometimes we do. And then come and stand before me in this house. You do all those things, and then you come before me in this house, which is the temple which is called by my, by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go out doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Whew. Jeremiah bringing out the wood, right? The contexts are different from when Jeremiah prophesied and what we have here in the first century with Jesus, but the problems are similar. God's house of worship is being defiled. The temple was being used as a safe haven for robbers. The scene in Matthew 21 and John 2 should cause us to pause and ask the question, I think, I'd ask this for our church, for me, is Redemption Hill a people who worship God, or do we have expectations about the church to be something that it was never supposed to be in the first place? Even though we meet in this um, modest facility, right? I mean, we just upgraded the podium from a music stand to this, right? We meet in this modest facility. Do you arrive expecting to sing, to pray, to fellowship, receive the preaching of God's word, and to allow the Holy Spirit to be at work in your heart and mind? Further, and this is the crux of the problem for Jeremiah, Israel was worshiping idols and not the living God from Monday to Saturday and then showing up on Sunday as if this, the previous six days did not matter. In the New Covenant, we know that the people of God are now the temple. 1 Corinthians 3, and go to 1 Corinthians 6. And we live lives of worship. Therefore, we are to worship God on every day that ends in Y. Back to Matthew 21, because the response 
of Christ is surprising and perhaps off-putting for many people. How was the righteous indignation of Christ expressed? We already read in verse 12 that he overturned tables and chairs. We also read in verse 12 that Jesus drove out the money changers doing business in the temple. And the Gospel of John records that Jesus made a whip of cords. Jesus pushed people out of the temple with a whip. Matthew 21 shows us a picture of Jesus that is not the buddy Jesus that has been constructed by our culture. Jesus is love. Stand by that statement when we define love rightly. Jesus is love. And Jesus is also perfectly just. If someone were to come to your house and turn it into a brothel, you would have every right to be upset. You should have a righteous anger because the house has been defiled. Jesus has every right to be upset because the house of God has been defiled. What Jesus did in the temple is perhaps one of the most direct confrontations he had with Jewish, Jewish leaders, I think. It was direct, and he would have shocked everyone in the temple and in Jerusalem. Jesus was acting like a revolutionary to some degree. You just don't do what Jesus did in the temple. His actions were shocking because of the location. So we see injustice, and we see why Jesus was rightly angry. But Jesus also gives us a clue about how we are to worship and honor God. In this whole scene of chairs and tables being overturned and a cord of whips, Jesus gives us clues about how we are to rightly order our worship as ones who are part of the temple. So, if the temple and now the church are not for selling, trading, extortion, etc., then what are the expectations, generally speaking? The cleansing of the temple exposes at least four areas of why the local church exists. First is prayer. Second, caring for the sick. Three, a place for children. And four, scriptures being proclaimed. We see all those things happening in this temple scene. First, obviously the church exists for prayer. It comes right out of the mouth of Christ. In verse 13, Jesus calls the temple a house of prayer. And the church needs to have a similar focus when we gather on Sunday or when you're at home in the evening on Tuesday. We pray to the living God that we may align our lives with God's will. We pray in the times of crisis and need. We pray for those who don't know Christ. We pray when a couple is married or when there's a newborn. We pray for our country and city. There is prayer before every sermon and in the communion line. We pray to the living God, the one who created the universe and the one who continues to sustain the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1-2. Prayer is not getting what you want but it is communing with the living God. That's why Jesus calls the temple a house of prayer. It's where you communed with the living God. The actions of Christ in the temple did not happen because he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. He cleanses the temple so that it would be used for its intended purposes. Just like the tabernacle before and the temple at that time. It's where they communed with God. So we pray. Jesus gives us that clear indicator. The second aspect of church life is caring for the sick. 
In Matthew's account, we read that Jesus healed the lame and the blind. I certainly believe God can still heal the the lame and the blind, verse 14. In the past, this church has certainly prayed for those who are sick. Emails are sent out when there's opportunities to pray. But I'm going to add another dimension of caring for the sick. Is it possible that caring for the sick means physically being with the sick? Now, I know that I'm sticking my hand into a hornet's nest right now. I get that. Um, But I think 2020 exposed something that already existed within the American church ethos. For years, when a person is sick, what do we do? We isolate. We isolate that person. Shutter them in. Y'all know I'm right. Now, I'm not suggesting that people be reckless when they're sick. I'm not suggesting that you are to be reckless when you are sick. That is not what I'm suggesting. However, I think it is worth considering that the church, big C and little c here, be more thoughtful about putting compassion into action with the sick, with the lame. When Jesus cleansed the temple, the holiest place for the Jews, when he cleansed the temple, do you know who he didn't kick out? The lame and the blind. I was just, quick Google search. Jesus healing in the New Testament. Like, I couldn't stop reading. It's just, oh, it's just, it's all over the Gospels, all over the Gospels. Yet the, ter- the church has taken a different posture. And I think we need to reconsider what our posture should be when it comes to the sick. And I'll also add the elderly as well. When Jesus heals the lame, the blind, and the temple, was the power of God on display? For sure. No, no one was going to deny that except for the Pharisees and the scribes. But also was the compassion of God on display. 100%. And the church needs to do the same. We want to show the power of God to heal and the compassion of God. There are a few more lessons the church can learn from this scene in the temple. Did you notice the attention Jesus places on children? Again, this is one of those themes that runs all throughout the Gospels. Jesus' love for the children. Jesus heals the lame and the blind, and then the children start singing, Hosanna to the Son of David, verse 15. These are the same words praised out loud when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Matthew 21, verse 9. We see that the chief priests and the scribes, now they became sinfully angry when they heard the children. Jesus had a righteous anger. Now we see the religious leaders getting sinfully angry. Why? Hosanna means save us or deliver us. Jesus is proclaimed to be the Savior when the children shout Hosanna. The religious leaders just could not handle it. The religious leaders expected Jesus to to squash the cheers. Like, Jesus, you're going to do something about that? But Jesus knows that the children understand better what is going on than the religious adults. Quoting Psalm 8, Jesus says, Yes, have you never said, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. 
Like, there's at least two lessons from this interaction. First, we should not be shocked that the people of God throughout the entire Bible are called children. In the Old Testament, Israel was called God's child. As adults, we need to say with the children, Hosanna to the son of David. It does take a childlike faith to praise the Savior of the world. Second, it is really important that we continue to be a church where, and this is more practical, where children are seen as a blessing and not a burden. I love it when kids are running around and playing. And, you know, I will take the problem of having to, like, all right, don't touch that thing over there. Don't climb on that. We'll, we'll take that problem. Children are a blessing from the Lord. And, jo- and Jesus knows that as well. In the temple, Jesus affirms the children and rebukes the adult religious leaders. The final and subtle takeaway from this scene is the use of Scripture. Jesus grounds his righteous anger in Scripture. Jesus, as we see, rebukes religious leaders by pointing to Scripture. Now, Redemption Hill needs to be a place of worship that continues to have its foundation in the Word of God, right? And I think we do this well. The foundation of our confession of faith is Scripture. The worship songs that Ryan or Rob pick is grounded in God's Word. Every sermon requires you to open your Bible. I mean, if an alien were to like, beam down or whatever, however that works, and like poke in and come into church between you know, 10 and 11.30, and, they walk, and he walked away, I hope he'd be like, they love this ancient book. They keep talking about this ancient book. And I would say yes and amen. We love this book. We love what God has revealed through this book. So those are some takeaways in terms of what our worship should not look like and what our worship of God should look like. Before I connect the cleansing of the temple with Holy Week in a very specific way, it is worth asking, is Jesus giving us permission to turn over tables and chairs and like righteous anger. Because, <laughs> you know, after all, Christians are supposed to, to be like Jesus, right? <laughs> Talk a lot about that. It could, be, it could become more and more into likeness of Christ. Now, I'm not going to recommend uh, turning tables and chairs over, even if it's justified. Um, our Lord gets a pass on, on his actions. I'm not, I'm not endorsing that. No, no, no cord of whips. No one's showing up next week with a cord of whips. But you do have permission to have a righteous anger because of the evils that prevail in this world. I can have a righteous anger because women and children are being trafficked all over the world. Right? I can have a righteous anger every June when God's design for humanity and sexuality is shunned and declared ancient, old, and bigoted. I can have a righteous anger at the porn industry. I can have a righteous anger because of the aborting of unborn babies. I can have a righteous anger when the poor are taken advantage of by the rich. I can have a righteous anger when God's ways are are maligned. I can have a righteous anger while at the same time extending love to a person or a people who are broken and desperately in need of God's grace and mercy for healing and wholeness. I can preach against wickedness while at the same time declaring the love of God through repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can do the same. You can do the same. 
I found this quote helpful uh, from Professor Craig Bloomberg. He says this, We usually get angry when our rights are infringed. It is difficult to be righteous in indignant self-defense. But like many of our Old Testament prophets, Jesus provides a good paradigm for speaking out publicly about God's indignation against the flagrant defiance of his standards in the world. Once again, it was the clergy and the Bible teachers, not the disreputable people of society who are Jesus' target for attack. Corruption among the leadership of God's people arouses Jesus' wrath more quickly than anything else. And so in one sense, I'm pointing the finger at me. Right? But Christ is more than denounce injustice. He takes action against it. That the temple merchants quickly resumed business as usual is often speculated, but we are not told one way or the other. And this last point is really important. The point is that Jesus did what was right, irrespective of the duration of its effect. Sometimes, when it comes to doing what is right, our thoughts go to, what are the repercussions? And maybe some of those thoughts are helpful. But we see here, Jesus just did what was right. Period. Hard stop. What the cleansing of the Jerusalem temple teaches us is that you, Christian, the new temple of God, are called to rightly order your life to worship God. You are to reject what God rejects, and you are to worship in accordance with his word. Least you think my connection between the Jerusalem temple and the people of God now being a temple is unwarranted. I want to show you how the connection is made. John 2. Told you, told you we're going to dip our toe in John 2. John 2 shows us the righteous anger of Christ in the temple is connected to the righteous anger of God the Father at the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's how Holy Week connects with today's passage. I'm going to quote it from John 2. After cleansing the temple, we read, So the Jews said to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? How dare you do these things? Who gives you this authority? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? So they clearly were not getting the point, right? That probably would have been me too. I've been like, dude, 46 years, this thing. You got three days? Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They asked Jesus, on what authority can you make a whip of cords and drive everyone out? And Jesus responds, I'll show you what authority in which I cleanse this temple. And by the end of the week, he did show them. Jesus is going to show why the physical temple is now irrelevant, and he is everything. It took the wrath of God to be poured out on Christ so that his people could be redeemed. It took the temple of Christ to be destroyed and then resurrected. So do you believe that Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and he rose from the dead? Do you believe that the true place of worship is not a building. I mean, thank goodness we meet in a cafeteria, you know? It's not a building. But it is worship 
to Jesus Christ. And don't get me wrong, I love beautiful buildings. I love beauty. Give me a a nice, good-looking church building. I like that, but it's not a building. We get to sing, we get to gather together in this modest place, and we sing praises to Jesus, because we are his temple. How amazing is that? How amazing is that? You know, the temple in Jerusalem, the temple that Jesus was standing, the one in which he cleansed, was destroyed in 70 A.D., so 40-ish years after the death of Christ, Christ, right? And for good reason. The destruction of the temple would have rocked the first century world. It was their 9-11, right? And the destruction of the temple is symbolic of a new way in which a person can commune with the living God. Because you, Christian, are part of that temple And Jesus is the cornerstone. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.